Good afternoon. How we doing? Good, good. Uh, well, we are in uh, the book of James. We're actually going to be in the very last section in the book of James. We're going to finish the last little bit that James has, what he wrote to a church thousands of years ago to see what it means for us today. And it's so fascinating that the thing that James says after he, he gives five chapters on how to live the Christian life right where we are. How do we best practice the Christian life right where we are? And he chooses to close out the entire thing by talking about prayer. Now, I'm going to take a guess and just say that our relationship with prayer is at best frustrating, maybe confused for most people. For many of us, prayer is this thing that we do that if we're honest, we can't even describe what is happening when we do it. We don't even know what it actually does. There's this famous encounter with Mother Teresa, uh, and she is talking to Dan Rather, who's a CBS reporter. And Dan Rather, who wasn't a Christian, was always fascinated by Mother Teresa. And he just was always fixated on her lifestyle, how she chose to live with the poor and not, she kind of just refused money. And so Rather asked her, when you pray, what does God say to you? Or what, or what do you say to God? And she said, well, I don't say anything. I listen. He goes, oh, okay, okay. Well, okay, when God speaks to you, what does he say? He doesn't say anything. He listens. And rather is really confused, doesn't know what to say back to her. And she says, and if you don't understand that, then I just can't explain it to you. That's a pretty gangster move by Mother Teresa. And it's a long way of saying prayer can be confusing. If you notice in Jesus' own ministry, the disciples who have access to literally God incarnate don't ask for help on anything other than prayer. It's the one thing they ask for help on. And even in our own lives, prayer can be this thing that we do so often, we just know what people are going to say when they pray. Like there are prayers, if I started to pray them right now, you know them intrinsically that you could finish my sentence. So for example, if I said, bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies, right? And we'll pray that prayer over anything. It don't matter the food, McDonald's, you name it. We'll somehow, well, that's a miracle we're asking for God to do. Or maybe we see prayer as kind of this transitional thing, right? It's this thing before we have the meal. It's the thing that I'm going to do after the sermon, before we go back into worship. It never really feels like the main thing. It's just kind of this thing. And I think for a multitude of reasons, many people ask the question, well, what does prayer do and what power does it really have? And James chooses to answer those questions in the last few sections of his letter. So read with me in James chapter 5. I'm going to be in verse 13. We're going to take a couple sections as we go. James says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Well, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. So James begins, the half-brother of Jesus, three questions in a row. Do you know anyone who is suffering? Do you know anyone who is joyful? And do you know anyone who is sick? And the answer to all of them, in some form or another, is to pray. If anyone is experiencing any of these emotions, and notice that's basically the entire emotional spectrum to some degree, your response is to pray. And you say, of course, we should pray in all things. I read that in scripture. I get it. I, sh I should pray. 
But James does something very interesting. In verse 15, he does something that if you're reading it, you might feel a little bit uncomfortable. James says, hey, if you know anyone who is sick, what you should do is you should call the elders. And in this context, that just means really anyone a part of the church body. Call the elders over this sick person, and they're going to anoint that person with oil, which was a Jewish practice to purify somebody. And when they pray over them, James says, that sick person, they will be saved. They will be raised up, and they will be forgiven. I don't know about you if that makes you at all uncomfortable to any degree, because for many of us, we read that and say, James is so emphatic. He says, well, if you just pray, they're going to be healed. But for many of us, we've had loved ones and friends that we've prayed for, and it seemed the more we pray for them, the less likely they were to be healed. It seems like our prayers didn't do much. And so what is James communicating to us here? Is James wrong? There are actually lots of parts of scripture that on our first read, we might be inclined to think the Bible just doesn't get it. I'll read you a couple out of Proverbs. Proverbs 22.6 says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Every parent said, "Uh uh-uh, that didn't happen. I have a friend who brings up this verse religiously to me. His children are all grown up now, and he always brings it up, I read this promise in scripture and my kids hate me. What about this promise? Let me give you another one. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. Proverbs 28, 13. And we know that ain't true. So we are left with a question. Is scripture wrong? And you guessed right, you're in a church, we're going to say, no, scripture is correct. But what James and Proverbs is doing here, this is an ancient form of writing called wisdom literature, which is written, it can sound to us in the West like a guarantee. But what James and the book of Proverbs do is they are giving you bits of wisdom, meaning your life will be better off if you practice these things than if not. It is not a guarantee, but it is wisdom. And so James is saying it is a wise thing for you to do when someone is sick or suffering to call people around and to pray for them. But you are not guaranteed it, but it is a wise thing to pray for their healing. Now, what I also want you to notice, one more thing, this is a little bit technical, but stay with me. It's in verse 15, James says a few things will happen to that person when you pray over them. James says, well, God will save them. In in other words, the person will be healed. And then it says, God will raise them up, which is kind of the same way to say they will be healed. So does James repeat himself twice here? Well, what James is doing is really sneaky and very beautiful. See, the term raised up in the New Testament almost exclusively refers to the second coming of Christ when we will be resurrected with Jesus when he comes again. And so in a sense, what James is doing here is he's saying, look, there are two things that could happen. You could pray for someone who is sick and God could heal them right then and right there. Or on the day that Jesus comes, he could heal them, he could heal them right there. We went through this kind of last week, which is there are two options. But James is essentially inviting his community to give their desires over to God and to see what his will will do. We don't know what God's going to do. One or the other, he's going to heal them on either end. But we need to develop a dependency, a trust, a faith in God that when we pray for people, he will, he will hear us. It doesn't mean he will always answer them in the way that we want, but it will help us to understand what his will is. It is inviting God into our process. When we pray, we are saying, God, I don't know what you're going to do, but will you help me learn to love you in the process, to trust the process? 
One of my favorite verses in scripture is in the book of Daniel, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are about to go into the fiery furnace. And all they have to do is rescind their faith in God. Just, hey, we will not kill you as you just bow down to our gods here in Babylon. Just rescind your faith. Just do it. And this is what they say. They say, if we are thrown into this blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from it. But even if he does not, I love that kind of faith that it takes right there. That this is essentially what James is inviting the people into, which is God can heal he will, he will heal them, but even if he doesn't, let us learn to love his will and his goodness in the process. So James is inviting the people of God to learn to pray for God's will in all circumstances, whatever it may be, learning to love God's will. New Testament scholar Doug Moose said this in response to this verse. He said, to ask in Jesus' name means not simply to utter his name, but to take into account his will. Only those requests offered in that will are granted. Prayer for healing offered in the confidence that God will answer that prayer does bring healing, but only when it is God's will to heal. So you see what essentially Doug Moo is saying here, and essentially what James is saying, is that God will answer your prayer. We believe God answers all prayers, but not always in the way that we want him to. And when you pray for healing, when you pray in times of suffering, you are saying, God, I can't wait for you to answer this prayer. I don't know how you're going to do it, but help me grow a dependence and trust to follow you through it. Uh, when I was in high school, I dated a senior when I was a freshman. Other words, I was a big shot. I was riding high. And we dated for a very long time in high school, two months. <laughs> and she broke up with me, sadly. And I was a Christian. So I said, okay, I'm going to pray that God would get us back together. I prayed so hard, I even got down on my knees, okay? That's like how hard I prayed. And I prayed fervently for weeks. Lord, I just please, come on. She doesn't realize what she, the mistake she's making. Help her to see it. Um, and God never answered that prayer. Or did he? Because we were never back together. But like a few months later, I sat next to who would be my wife in biology class. So God did not answer my exact request. Praise God he didn't, because now I'm with the love of my life. He didn't answer my prayer in the way that I wanted him to, but he answered it in the way that if I knew all that he knew, he would answer it. So prayer is learning to say, God, whatever your mercy is, whatever your will is, help me to learn to want to conform to it. Uh, the West, Westminster Confession of Faith and the Shorter Catechism, they have a lot of kind of just question and answer in their catechism, and one of them is about prayer, and it says this, and I think it sums up beautifully what James is saying. Question 98, what is prayer? Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. So James is saying, you want to grow in faith? begin to pray. Prayer is an act of faith. Prayer is an act of faith. 
In verse 15, it says that a prayer of faith is the one that God will answer. And many people can misread that and say, that means I need to have super faith when I pray um, for nerdy reasons that I will, I will spare you of. That's sometimes best translated as prayer in faith. And so prayer helps us develop this dependence upon God. Just this week, um, as I was preparing for this sermon on, on, a, on a Wednesday night, my wife and I, we got some very unfortunate news about our housing. Just frustrating news, part of living in New York. And it, it gave me a ton of anxiety. And I couldn't sleep that night. And I was just laying in bed. And I'm not a restless sleeper. And when you, when you preach on prayer, you're always reminded about how bad you are at it. And so I said, okay, I'm preaching on this text. I need, I need to pray. And so I'm just sitting there. And the only thing that I could come up with to say was, Jesus, in your name. In your name. Help me to understand what you're doing here. Help me to understand what you're doing here. And I couldn't even form what I was trying to ask for. But I just kept saying, your will, your will, in your name, in your name. The next morning I woke up, continued working on the sermon. My computer crashes, whole sermon, gone. And some of you are like, is that why the sermon is so bad? <laughs> it might be. Um, and I just was struggling. And I just said, God, in your name, please help me. You know what you are doing. And I started to text friends, and I said, hey, I'm just, I'm barely making it this morning. Please pray for me. Please pray for me. And after a few hours, nothing in my life physically changed. My manuscript did not appear out of the cloud. My housing was not fixed. But I felt a closeness with God. That if God can command the seas and the sun and this entire city and still cares about me, loves me, and likes me, I will see through this. He is doing something. Lord, would you help me? figure out how to stay close to you in the midst of it. Help me to not maybe understand your will, but learn to love it. And that's what James invites us into. So the application here is we need to pray to grow our faith. I took a class one time with a guy named Randy Orr, who's at Dallas Theological Seminary. And he said that him and his wife had, had they have prayer journals over the last two decades, and they've kept them the entire time. And they said their favorite activity to do is to go back into their old prayer journals from the 1990s and see all the prayer requests that God answered. And they said to the class, do you know how many answered prayers we've had in two decades? 10,000 answered prayers. And he says, do you know what that does for your faith? It lets you know that 10,001 is coming. And that is what the power of prayer does, is that it gets us a closeness with God to realize you are good, you have followed through, and you will continue to follow through, and I'm going to see you do it. And that's the invitation that James gives us. Let's go now to verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So James begin, begins this next section by saying, okay, we have a dependence upon God in prayer. Great. What do you do next? You confess your sins to the people around you, and you pray for healing in the sins that you have. And then James brings up the example of the prophet Elijah, which is a story in 1 Kings 17 and 18, when Elijah 
is tasked with this prayer to make Israel pay attention to God. Israel's forsaken God. They will not listen. They've forgotten the God that has sustained them and cared for them. And so to get Israel's attention, Elijah prays for a drought for three years to say, look, you need to listen and repent and follow God. And after a while, to show them that God is in control, Elijah prays for rain. And John Calvin, who is the great kind of Swiss uh, theologian, he thought this was one of the most amazing like parts of scripture. He was so baffled by this. This is what he said in this part of James. It was, no, it was a notable event for God to put heaven in some sense under the control of Elijah's prayer, to be obedient to his request. By his prayers, Elijah kept heaven shut for three years and a half. Then he opened it and made it suddenly pour with a great rain from which we may see the miraculous power of prayer. Do you see what, what James is communicating? He's saying, Elijah, who even though he was an important figure in the Bible, he is just like us. And yet because of his prayer, it was so powerful that God put the will of heaven and earth under it that listened to his prayer. Look at the tightrope that James is walking. The first section, James says, look, admit that you're powerless. Submit yourself to God's will. You don't know what he will do. You are powerless in this scenario. Next section, he says, and though you are powerless, your prayers are so powerful. And so let me ask you a question that you're going to be inclined to say yes to because we're in church, but do you feel like your prayers change anything? Like, do you actually feel if you pray for something, God will change the circumstance? My mom and I are uh, very close, Uh, and I'm the last of six. She's a single mom. We have a very tight relationship. And there was a season when I went down for winter break in college. And my mom told me that she had just gone to the doctor about a week ago, and the doctors wanted to let her know that they had found something cancerous in her body. And they gave her the talk of prepare for the worst and prepare your things. And I was overwhelmed by the scenario. And so I just began to pray. There's nothing like the suffering of a loved one that makes you feel so powerless. And I started to text my friends in college, I know you guys don't know my mom, but can you please pray for her? And I called my church and I said, hey guys, can we please pray for my mom? And within an hour, my mom had people praying for her that she had never met and probably never will meet. And a week went by and we went to the doctor's office to get the results. And I'll never forget the feeling of despair in that room. If I'm honest, I did not think God would come through. And the doctor came in, and this is his literal words. I'm not making this up. You must have people praying for you because we cannot find anything. Let me give you one more. My father-in-law was plagued by seizures his entire life. And they always disrupted his way of living. And when he went to college, it was exceptionally bad. And so he went to go see the campus doctor. He said, I've been struggling with seizures. They come at any moment, and I don't know what to do. And the doctor said, I want you to go to the chapel on campus every day for a week and pray. And my father-in-law is not religious. And he does, and he has never had a seizure again. Now, is the moral of those stories to not go to the doctor? No, not at all. But what it does show you is the power of what prayer can do. If Elijah cannot make it rain, God can certainly see you in your circumstance and work a miracle. And let me tell you, there is nothing like 
watching, something, watching an answered prayer in terms of saving and keeping and sustaining your faith. In moments when I felt like friends were leaving the faith, dropping like flies, and I'm experiencing doubt, nothing has kept me more than when I think about all the miracles I've seen God do in my life and the life of those around me. When you have seen too much, you cannot walk away. That's the power of what prayer does. Now, what is so beautiful is James is talking all about answered prayer and the power of prayer, but in the context of confession and sin. James is telling the people that he's writing to, the God who can tell the rain to not rain for three and a half years can certainly heal you of the sin that you are experiencing. James says you need to realize that one of the most, he says you need to confess to your brothers and sisters the sin of what you have. I meet with a group of guys every Friday morning and we confess sin to each other. It is humiliating, humiliating. And then they pray for me and it is empowering. It is so empowering. And so James says, do you want to experience this radical nature and power of prayer? Then be humbled and confess your sin and watch God work. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is the German theologian and martyr, and his Christian classic, Life Together, which is a beautiful book on the Christian life and how the church comes together to live it out, says this about confession. In confession occurs the breakthrough of the cross. The root of all sin is pride. I want to be my own law. I have a right to myself, my hatred, my desires, my life, and my death. But confession in the presence of another is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts. It cuts us down. It is a dreadful blow to pride. And the deep mental and physical pain of humiliation before another, which means before God, we experience the cross of Jesus as our rescue and salvation. The old self dies, but it is God who has conquered it. Now we share in the resurrection of Christ and eternal life. This is the point in which James says, there is power in prayer. There is power in being humble and confessing. So let me just ask you, what have you stopped praying for? What have I stopped praying for? What have we stopped confessing and just said, it's just me, it's just who I am, struggle with it my whole life. And where do we need to realize that God is so powerful that he can heal anything? Many of us, including myself, can be guilty of what Martin Luther said to one of his harshest critics, was this, your thoughts of God are too human. And for many of us, when it comes to our sin and struggles and areas we want to see God move, we are probably guilty of that because we think, I don't know if God could do this. But our thoughts of God are too human and the power of prayer is extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. Let's go to the last section here now, starting in verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So I want you to realize that James, the half-brother of Jesus, such an important figure in church history, he closes out his entire book by saying, let me zoom out and get very pastoral with you. Let me talk to you about a very important subject about how to live out the kingdom of God here on heaven. It is how to care for the people around you. Notice James does not say, guys, I'm a missionary. If you could send me my money, some money, my, my Venmo handle is this. Just a couple bucks will get me to Cyprus, not a big deal. 
He does not say, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. Don't forgive me. Let me go down in Christian history. I shared, a, I shared a bedroom with God. He says, you need to make sure you care for those who wander from the faith. That is his last word. The letter is over. This is what is important to him. He spent the last four and a half chapters on, here's how you live the Christian life. Here's how you live the Christian life. And he closes with, make sure you take care of those around you. In one sense, James is saying, you need to do all this, all that I have commanded, together, with one another, not alone. Keep each other accountable. And so there's two sections here that I want to highlight that I think are important here. One is about the church, and one is about the lost. James ends with an emphasis on the gathered community. Let me just tell you right here, this is the most important room you will be in all week. There are a ton of gathered communities in the city. I mean, you can gather around literally anything in the city. There is a place for everybody. But there is no other community that will challenge you and grow you, encourage you, and inspire you towards life and godliness like this community. And when you realize that we are not a social club, and we're not here to take your money, that we are here to spur each other on towards the kingdom of God, it changes how you view this room. James's letter can be read very personally. You, know, you can read it and say, okay, I just need to apply this to my life. But James ends by saying, no, we need to apply it to each other's lives. That as we read this letter, we say, man, I want this for myself and my brother and my sister, and I'm going to pray to that end. I'm going to confess sin to that end and watch God work in our community. So we need to have an emphasis on each other. If you feel self-sufficient in this room right now, you have the wrong attitude. Because here's reality. I need you, and you need me. We need each other. The Christian life is a team sport, and we rely on one another. A second point here that I think James really points on is the lost. James talks about the people who will wander away from the truth. And I love what James says because it is so counter to our initial reaction. He says, when there are people who walk away from the faith, and if you've been in the church for more than five minutes, you know this happens, and it is devastating to watch people you love walk away. He says, here's what you do not do. You don't say, I knew it. They were, they were always like that. They, just, they don't commit. I knew it was never genuine. It was just, it was just a fad. It'll, it'll move on. No. James says, you need to go after that person. You do not give up on people who give up on you. And the reason why is because the grace of God compels us. Every time we see someone who walks away from us, who gives up on the church, we are reminded of our own salvation story. That Christ never gave up on us. That he left the 99 to pursue the one. That when Christ was on the cross, we were the ones running away with the disciples. And when we came back home, Christ decided to throw a party for us and not condemn us. And so when someone leaves our community, our reaction is not frustration or shame. It is, man, heartbroken. And we see an image of ourselves in it, and we hope to God that they will come back. And we do not give up on them. But we pray fervently that God would stir their heart to come back. That is the kind of people we ought to be. And that's how James ends his whole letter. Gives us four and a half chapters of do this, do this, and take care of those who leave. 
Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, tells this story about a woman named Jenny. Jenny grows up in Traverse City, Michigan, to conservative parents, and she hates her upbringing because her parents are restrictive, and they're religious, and they go to church, and she can't get the piercings she wants, or the tattoos that she wants, can't hang out with the friends that she wants, and so she decides that right before her 18th birthday that she's going to run away. And she says, you know, I think my parents will look for me if I go somewhere like L.A. or New York, but they would never look for me in the same state. I'm going to go to Detroit. So she takes a bus to Detroit, runs away, tells nobody, gets to Detroit, gets off the bus, realizes she has no means, no money to get anywhere else. And after a while of walking, there's a gentleman who seems nice and seems honest. And he says, hey, you look very beautiful. You know, why, why, don't, you, why don't you hang out with me? Takes her in begins to expose her to drugs, and they begin to have sex, and, and she experiences this life and says, oh, these were the things my parents restricted me from. These, these are not sins, these are gifts. And after a while, her, her boyfriend, who has been so sweet, says, you know what, hey, I, I've been giving all these drugs for free. This is not a free ride. You're going to have to start pitching in. There, there's some friends down the street that if you just do what we do for free, they'll give us drugs. And so she essentially has to sell herself to these men. And she doesn't want to do it. She hates that she has to do it, but she does it because her boyfriend did, was so sweet to her. And after a while, she develops an STD. And then her boyfriend was, he says, I have no more use for you. I cannot use you. You've got to go. You've got to go back out in the street. And so she becomes homeless again, starts sleeping in Walmart parking lots. It's been several years that her life has been like this. And she wants a new start, so she wants to buy a bus ticket to go to Toronto. And she realizes, when looking at the route, that there's going to be a 10-minute stop in Traverse City. And for the first time in years, she has this thought that she hasn't had in forever, which is, I want to go home. She hasn't talked to her parents in years. She doesn't know what they think of her. She thinks they might hate her. So she calls home. She leaves a message. She says, hey, Mom and Dad, it's Jenny. I'm going to be in Traverse City at the bus station on this day, it's a 10-minute stop. If you have any interest in seeing me, just come by. Bus pulls up, and Jenny gets out. And she doesn't know what's going to happen, if they're going to be there, if they're going to be upset with her. And she steps out, and there's a sign that says, Welcome home, Jenny. And all of her cousins and her friends who haven't seen her in years, so there, it feels like the whole city's there. And they grab her and they wrap her in a hug and they say, we miss you, we love you, you're late for the party. And she says, what party? She says, the party is for you, you're home. And she says, but I only have 10 minutes, I gotta go to Toronto. I said, no, 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 we got you, you're safe. That's gospel love. Know where were you, what you've been up to, why did you do this to us? You're welcome home. We love you. That's what James is talking about. That's the kind of people we got to be. So, as we come to the close of this letter, let's be a people who pray for God's will, like James tells us to. Let's be a people who pray for God's power in our life over sin, death, and suffering. And let's be a people who love like God loves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you have been so good to us throughout our entire life. That, God, you have given us all things necessary for life and godliness. 
God, we pray as we come to a close to this letter and we see all the things that we ought to do because we follow you, that you would empower us in the power of your Holy Spirit to learn to develop a dependency and a trust on you in our prayer life. And God, that in our prayer life, we would learn that our prayers matter and they're powerful and you are working miracles every day, God. And we pray that you would help us to realize that we need to be a community that welcomes people home. Would you help us to do so? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.